0: Wait, is that, a, is that a a hot chocolate with whipped cream that Mark just got delivered to him?
1: It delivered me a hot chocolate. Because I I, I I shoveled snow. I earned it.
0: With whipped cream?
1: This is
2: show material right here. I just
0: want to live in your house. I want to live in your house where just like the, the hot cocoa and whipped cream flows.
1: This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by tablet editor-at-large Leah Leibovitz.
2: A hockey shalom to you. <laughs>
1: And his boss, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnett.
0: <laughs> reporting for duty, managing all of you, taking notes, taking names, et cetera.
1: <laughs> this week, a couple of great interviews. Our first Jew of the week is TV legend Ed Asner. And we all speaks with author Cambria Gordon about her young adult book, The Poetry of Secrets. It is snowing here in New Haven. My children are out shoveling. I knew that eventually having a basketball team's worth would pay off.
0: I think you mean a floor hockey's worth.
1: (laughs) A modern Orthodox Jewish girls school floor hockey team's worth. Five young Jews. This is where it pays off when you have to rake or shovel cuz you just throw them all at it and Davey for the first time ever 2 years old suited up this morning in his <laughs> snow gear Aww. and was shoveling with his little baby shovel it was the cutest thing
0: so he had 2 years of leisure and then he had got put to work
2: and and then labor begins he's prepared to drop out of 8th grade in the
0: Oppenheimer gulag up there
2: <laughs> we should tell our listeners that for doing none of the shoveling work this morning you just received a steaming hot cup of not just hot cocoa but hot cocoa topped with whipped cream and sprinkles.
1: It is true. When Sid makes a hot chocolate for somebody, she goes all out. And it was very sweet of her that she blessed me with a hot chocolate. That, that sounded so Christian. She blessed me with a hot chocolate today. Well,
0: she you fellowshipped first.
1: <laughs> and later on, we will fellowship.
0: <laughs> also, hot cocoa is like like this idea of like a non-alcoholic drug. Like, there's something very wholesome about it in a way that works with the fellowshipping.
1: I feel like by posing this question, I could lose the next hour, and our show will never get back on track. But I didn't grow up saying hot cocoa. Cocoa felt to me, dare I say, a little bit goyish. Like yes. we said, hot chocolate. Were you cocoa people, Stephanie?
0: No, 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 no. We were hot chocolate fam. And also, cocoa just seemed too like cutesy. Like like oh, we we
2: warm up by the fire with hot cocoa, and it's like what back. In the Jewish state, the cradle of (laughs) all things authentically Jewish, not only do we not call it hot cocoa, we do not use cocoa. We use actual bars of chocolate in milk. There is no other way to make this particular beverage, which you make literally twice a year when it gets cold by cold. I mean, 72 degrees. And that's how you do it. So you
1: think of cocoa as the powder.
2: Yes.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So they actually are two different things. I like the idea that you guys are having like the land of hot chocolate milk and honey Mm -hmm. over there. I wish it was like more acceptable for adults to drink chocolate milk. Those were the days.
1: Stephanie, what's going on
0: with you? So I've been on the, the Hillel circuit lately, the college circuit. Inadvertently, I was asked by Bye. None other than Nate Strauss of the Michigan State Hill <laughs> to be on their their podcast. The famous um, Nate Strauss, the weekly catch.
1: Remind me, we determined that he is the Lois Weisberg of of Jews, <laughs> as if she weren't. That in fact, like it all leads back to him.
0: Wow, Mark, that's a deep cut. Isn't that a Malcolm Gladwell essay about Jacob Weisberg's mom? Anyway, yeah. So Nate Strauss recognized me on the beach in Tel Aviv and made the greatest day of my life. And he came up to me and said, "Are you Stephanie Bunting from an Orthodox?" I of course posted this on my Instagram overnight. You know, because I was I was ahead. I was in Israel. Everyone responded being like, I know Nate Strauss. I, he was my – like everyone from Michigan or <laughs> Michigan State like knows Nate Strauss. So everyone in that pocket of the country knows him. So it turned out I actually wasn't the celebrity. He was. I had a celebrity run-in. Anyway, so he um, is working with the MSU Hillel on this podcast called The Weekly fetch And so they had me on as a guest, and it was amazing. And we talked about college and all this stuff. And then, listener Whitney Fish, who runs the amazing Instagram account Jew Hungry.
2: Which is an amazing name, by the way. Whitney Fish? Yeah. It was, originally, it was Whitney Whitefish, but they <laughs> anglicized this when they got to America.
0: So she runs the Hillel at Miami University in Ohio, and she had me on as their like inaugural Women Crush Wednesday event. So it was part of like their Hillel wow. uh, at-home programming. Marvel's and I got up. interviewed by a grad student at Miami University, and I felt like I was back. Like I was back. I was cool. I was like... Binge drinking. Uh, what else? What else do you do in college? Were
1: there foam fingers involved?
0: Only I had. I had them. I was the number one <laughs> fan of being back in college. But it really made me feel a mix of young and old. Because I, I, you know, when you're talking to someone in college, you're like, "How old do you think I am?" You know, it's like when you're a little kid. Even like 15 year olds feel like they're like 50. I have this memory of
1: being bullied when I was in first grade by a fourth grader. Oh my god! I think they asked for my lunch money, but I didn't have any lunch money because I brought my lunch that day and. The kid was like such a tough, such a hood. Basically, in my mind, it was a 17-year-old juvenile delinquent, and he was nine.
2: Yeah, it's that's, amazing. That's what it's like.
1: So, Stephanie, I see your college experience, and I raise you a minor one of my own. Actually, I don't even see you. I can't. I have to fold. But, but I had one as well, which was I've been doing some research into Philip Roth because there's this new Roth biography coming out. And I was reading his memoir, The Facts. And for those of you who are not Philip Roth fans, I actually encourage you to look at his nonfiction because he wrote two memoirs, Patrimony about the death of his father, which is a very beautiful book about his taking care of his father as his father was failing. And then the other one is called The Facts, which is kind of four chapters on different periods of his life, different epochs of his life. And one of them is about his time at Bucknell. And for one semester or two, he was in Sigma Alpha Mu. He was a Sammy. And then somehow he drifted away from Sammy and got into the, the lit mag crowd, got all artsy. <laughs> But he has this theory about Sammy, which he posits pretty confidently that I wanted to run by you, Stephanie, as our correspondent to the Jewish Greek life world.
0: Proudly, yes.
1: I want to read this to you. This is from Roth's The Fact. The Jewish fraternity had nothing much that was Jewish about it except the holy sanctioned nickname by which the members were identified at Bucknell and every other campus where there was a chapter of Sigma Alpha Mu. As easily by themselves as by others, the Jewish brothers were called Sammy's. Had the fraternity been christened iota kappa epsilon, people might not have tolerated ikes so readily, but no one seems to have ever considered Sammys an even mildly stigmatizing label. Perhaps its purpose was prophylactic, preempting the attribution of diminutives less benign than this friendly-sounding acronym, which carried in its suffix only the tiniest sting. I, for one, never became accustomed to hearing it and could never say it. But probably I'd been sensitized unduly by Bud Schulberg's novel, which I'd read in high school, about the pushiest of pushy Jews, Sammy Glick. So Roth is saying, like, it was obvious to him at the time that even if the Jews were sort of owning it, that they knew that to call a Jew a Sammy was like calling him a Morty or a a Shlomo. In a trillion years, that wouldn't have occurred to me. Thoughts?
0: I actually don't know as much about Sammy because I didn't go to a school where there was one. So I know like, a Pi, that is a fraternity with Jewish root. Ru- like, I don't actually know. Is Sammy just like a fraternity that Jews go to or is it actually?
1: I've always heard it's, it's one of one the, one Jewish of the three historically Jewish fraternities. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: I don't know. I, I think it's funny that that's where his head was at. I don't know. Josh, are you Googling?
2: Um, <laughs> Josh Cross. <laughs> I did Google real quick. Sammy was definitely founded at City College here in New York City. And initially founded as a Jewish organization. Nice. In 1909. So it's all about us.
1: Interesting. I don't doubt that Sammy's Jewish. Was there ever any like ick factor to the fact that the brothers of Sigma Alpha Mu were called Sammy? Because Roth feels like it was mildly anti-Semitic.
0: The founders of Sigma Alpha Mu, which by the way, when you found an attorney, you get to call it whatever you want, right? Like they made that up. <laughs> so these are the, they're called the stalwart eight from City College in 1909. There's an Adolf. There's a David, an Ira, a Jacob, a Hyman, a Lester, and an Abram. Oh, and a Samuel Ginsburg. I think that there has to be something there
2: by the way look look we dodged such a bullet because if they named it after the first founder that you mentioned the adolphs it would have not <laughs> aged well the de- alpha delta
0: omicrons
2: yeah hey listen up you Adolphs.
0: <laughs> uh, think about it they could have been like the iota i like they could have been the iras like there's so many fun things we could have we could have all been
1: iota rho alpha yeah the iras that would have been amazing
0: the ovies I- <laughs> is there a v in greek
1: <laughs> I don't think there is. I totally trust our listeners to weigh in on this. Jay Crew, could you tell us? Here's the question: We want to know about Sammy culture. First of all, please tell me at a big school who goes Sammy and who goes Pi? I want stereotypes galore.
2: First of all,
0: it's funny because for girls, there's so many. Like, are you an Fi or an SDT? Like, there's there's a lot of stereotypes. I mean, SDT
2: look. it's pronounced stay. <laughs>
0: You know, I think that there's so much, like, inherent misogyny baked into the Greek system that I could talk about at length. So I think that, like, the wimp it's like, are you a this or are you a this? But with men, I'm actually really curious, like, who knows yeah. which. And- I
2: got to say, having grown up in Israel, all I could think about when this conversation is going on is the movie Revenge of the Nerds, which is literally <laughs> my that and Animal House which is, is my so sole good. introduction to the Greek system.
1: So J. Crew, number one, you know, what are the stereotypes of play here? And number two, for older Sammys, if you were Sammy back in the 50s, 60s, or even 70s, do you feel there was something a little bit demeaning about being called a Sammy? Was it somehow a Jewy first name that demeaned you? That, that's my question. Okay. Guys, before we move on to News, of the Jews. So you know how a lot of journalists from Andrew Sullivan to Barry Weiss to Glenn Greenwald to Jesse Single have been writing newsletters. They've moved onto Substack platform and they're charging people a little bit to do a weekly newsletter and you pay them or you sign up. Yeah, your Rosenberg from Tablet does a really good one. So I don't want to do that. I mean, I I like their newsletters, but I don't want to create more email for people. But what I did think I wanted to do was do a newsletter that was an actual piece of mail in which I mail it to people. You get a weekly or semi-monthly piece of mail from me with a stamp with your name written on it and you open it up and it's like a letter from me. I've been investigating this because I think everyone kind of hates email, but everyone likes snail mail, right? Who doesn't like getting a piece of mail?
0: I mean, I love getting a Jehovah's Witness newsletter by mail. It's
1: Because it's something. So here's the thing. I've been investigating this and it's not economically feasible if I'm going to put a full first class stamp of 55 cents on each piece. I'd have to charge people for the stamp and printing and all that like a dollar a week. So it becomes a $50 a year proposition. But if I get 200 subscribers willing to pay me something, I can get a bulk rate, which is down to about 20 cents a stamp. I can become a publication and get like the media bulk rate.
2: You could also so write off your children as labor and get them tax deductible.
0: We'll just have them deliver them around the country. There we go. Put on masks and just put them on the trail. <laughs> With their nimble little
2: fingers, <laughs> they'll fold the newsletters and put them in envelopes. Make a little box scooter and just
1: have them start scooting down the interstate. Correct. <laughs> so here's my question to the J. Crew I want to see if you guys will hook me up. Are there 200 of you who would pay $30 or $40 a year to get a weekly piece of mail from me? Because if there are, then I can sign you up. And get the bulk rate, which makes it all economically feasible. And you'll get a weekly super elite newsletter available nowhere in virtual form on actual paper for me. And this is an experiment I want to try. So if you're into that, there is some irony in the fact that I would sign people up via email and PayPal. But email me at tabletmag.com if this you think would scratch some itch of yours.
0: Question, question, question. Yes, Stephanie. Is this going to be typed or handwritten? And are you going to mimeograph it? Because I want the full effect. I'm going to sign up for this.
1: Thank you for asking. I went online to try to find out, could I find a, buy a mimeograph machine? That was a little prohibitive because you can get them on eBay, but the <laughs> ink is very expensive. So then I wanted to make it with an IBM Selectric typewriter. And it, those, again, you can get them. The problem is if a Selectric breaks, if any typewriter breaks, it's very hard to get typewriter repair. So ultimately what I did was look, It's it's not gonna be a perfectly retro item. But I did download Talisman, which is the digitization of the font Advance, which is the IBM Selectric font from the 1960s. So it will look like it was typed in an office cubicle sometime in, say, 1974. It'll be very all the president's men with all the people at their typewriters in the typing pool at the Washington Post. And it will be photocopied. I will actually use a photocopy and hopefully it'll kind of be kind of inky and smudgy. And, you know, we will see. We will see.
0: I love this idea and I can't wait to like I found out about some some good substacks from that Anna Wiener article about substacks in the New Yorker. I actually paid to subscribe to my first substack this week which felt really good. I think yours could be just like you could get so much good publicity for the fact that like screw substack you're literally mailing out a newsletter to people.
1: <laughs> I am literally and by the way I, I got the URL weeklybulletin.us it is going to be called the weekly bulletin and it is going to be mailed to your door but I need 200 people to say that they're in. So I've got Stephanie I'm in. I noticed Liel and Josh and Sarah and Rob being noticeably quiet about this. Remarkably quiet. <laughs> Remarkably quiet. <laughs> I will also
2: say, having having received family members' Hanukkah cards, like last week, <laughs> I think putting your trust in the U.S. Postal Service is it's an act of faith. That's part of the thrill. That's part of the thrill.
0: No, we fixed it. We fixed it. We all bought those stamps, and we're fine now.
2: <laughs> we're now 24 minutes into banter. Can we get some fucking laser beams already? <laughs>
1: put that in the show, Josh. All right. So friends, sign up at Moppenheimer at tabletmag.com. News of the Jews. N-O-T-J News of the Jews. Uh-huh. <laughs> To the news of the Jews, Stephanie, you are our Jewish conspiracy theory correspondent. What is the only news of the Jews item worth talking about this week?
0: Yeah, it's kind of a shame that we don't have conspiracy theorist researcher Mike Rothschild, not of the Rothschild, but maybe of the Rothschilds, on this week, because one of the greatest, greatest things was unearthed this week. I mean, so basically as some of, I mean, I don't even know why I'm explaining this that people don't already know, but Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is a new GOP congresswoman.
1: That's Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. to you. Who's our new
2: favorite congresswoman.
0: (laughs) So she's a new congresswoman. And basically, she has a lot of... We knew her as like the QAnon congresswoman. Like, she definitely was controversial. But this week, a lot more of her views came to light. And again, all of these were public. Like, these were all published on her Facebook and all this stuff. And she thinks horrible things like... 9-11 9-11 was an inside job that the shootings at Parkland and Sandy Hook were staged um, it's horrific like really really horrible things and it should not surprise anyone after that interview with Mike Rothschild and after actually living in the world as a Jewish person that if you're conspiracy minded there is always some person pulling the levers
2: who does it come back to
0: <laughs> yeah like it always sort of comes back to one shifty shady shuffling group of people who can answer for all of these things
2: large nose money bags um,
0: It's like on 30 Rock.
3: The television audience doesn't want your elitist East Coast alternative intellectual left wing. Just
0: say Jewish. This is taking forever. Um,
1: (laughs) Urbane cosmopolitan New Yorkers.
0: So basically, this is kind of complicated to explain, but all I want to say to you is Jewish space lasers. This is the Jewish space lasers conspiracy theory, which is that in two thousand. In 18, she said this. This is not a new thing. This is public. Before she ran for anything, before people voted for her, this was not something she hid. She basically suggested on Facebook that the California wildfires were not caused by climate, climate change, just things that happen naturally. Um,
1: Matches arson.
0: Basically, she has this kind of crazy theory that PG&E, which is a California electric company, like colluded with the Rothschilds, the banging family. And they have this space laser and the space laser shot lasers from space, the Jewish space laser. And that's what started the fires. And if you if you read this, it's it's all about this high speed rail project that they wanted. I mean, it is a truly deranged Facebook rant.
2: (laughs) So I I have a few things to say about this. Uh, First of all, Jewish Space Laser is only for us Jews who are familiar with it. For the goyim, please refer to him by his full name, which is Jewish Space Eliezer. You know, you're not you're not allowed to use a nickname. Second of all, like really like this is just proof of how lame the anti-Semites are coming because To miss an opportunity to call it the Death Star of David (laughs) it's just criminal. (laughs) You have this thing already. If you believe that we're reverting the power of the sun with lasers, go for it. This
0: is both horrifying. And of course, it got a ton of publicity. Again, I I, I want to say this was public. Like you could have voted for her and seen like this. That's the weirdest part about this. She didn't didn't say this today.
1: She doesn't hide her Jewish space laser theory. She puts it on Facebook.
0: And yeah, she also talks about like Zionist supremacists. I mean, a lot of her stuff has Jews at the root.
2: She says, I've I've seen a documentary about people who practice Jediism and it's very clear <laughs> that they're into lasers.
0: Our colleague, Yair Rosenberg, had a piece in Tablet Today which is actually really interesting and he sort of says, like, there's a reason why conspiracy theorists like Marjorie Taylor Green always land on the Jews. And it's, you know, he writes simply put, once a person like Green has decided that an invisible hand is behind the world's problems, it's only a matter of time before they decide it belongs to an invisible Jew. And the interesting thing is that this is such an outlandish conspiracy theory that it actually makes us laugh. Like, our Facebook group has been filled with just like jokes about space lasers, video clips, like, but the problem is it's horrible. But it's so funny that you're like, we have to laugh about it. Like, It was on SNL. Like, you know, it was sort of just like, what do we do with this? Right. Trump
1: endorsed her. The sitting president endorsed her. And then her constituents voted her into Congress. And she's someone who believes that wildfires are caused by Jewish space lasers. And it's no, it is completely horrifying. And I will say that our Facebook group this week, which I dipped into, as I sometimes do, seemed divided between focusing attention on this and the question of whether drinking a glass of milk is goyish
2: which
0: was I mean two equally important problems. But
2: well, yes, the answer is absolutely yes. So let's go back to the lasers. Okay.
0: First of all, like, let's parse this. She doesn't believe in climate change. That is too outlandish for her to believe. But this, this makes sense. And you're just like, what, what is that logic? And I know, you know, I think that talking to Mike Rothschild was really helpful, right? Like she is clearly so entrenched in these beliefs that you can't start arguing logic with her, but it's, freaking scary. Like, why is this person in government?
1: You know, you wonder what needs does it serve for someone? And it serves the needs of it's sort of if you're stimulus starved, right? If you're not stream, I don't know. I don't understand it. But it seems that if you're not streaming a really good show and have no, say, <laughs> worship life that excites you, that brings you closer to the divine, you're not reading good novels, maybe you don't have a good marriage. I don't know. This is exciting. I mean, Jewish space lasers, that'll get you out of bed in the morning and that'll get you onto the Peloton, right? If you've got to fight the Jewish space lasers.
0: I think there's really only one solution, Mark, and- and it's for you to subscribe Marjorie Taylor Green to your newsletter. <laughs> Entertain her.
1: Obviously. I mean Give her some
0: of that Jewish wit.
1: The question is is this the end or is it the beginning? Like is this the launching pad for a whole new world of intergalactic Jewish conspiracy theories? What's next? What what could top this? Anything?
0: I I fielded a series of humor pitches about this that came in. And it's like, maybe post-Trump, there's not that much to be funny about. Like, so maybe actually the Jewish <laughs> comics needed this to really jumpstart them and say, like, <laughs> there were a lot of things up being like, wait, who told about the Jewish space laser? Who who told them? Like, there was all this stuff about, like, I thought we all, you know, like, there's just amazing. Or, like, we don't use it on Shabbos, the Jewish space laser. Like
2: That's pretty funny. And
0: bad jokes alike have been just abounding the internet.
2: Of all places in the world, why would we burn California? (laughs)
0: Yeah, let's assume that
1: we have a Jewish space laser. Like, why this? I actually am hard at work creating the Shabbos space laser, which pauses on Shabbos. But then Shabbos in which time zone?
0: No, it just it just goes constantly on Shabbos. You don't have to turn oh, it I off. See. It's like the I elevator. See.
1: Like the elevator it just goes up and down, up and down.
2: See, what, what we were really trying to do is create an intergalactic Eruv. This is what the space laser was for. Just basically to okay. markate like some area by Venus.
1: Then it became self-aware, right? Correct. It wasn't our fault. It just that it
2: became self-aware. Well,
0: it's Jewish. It just got so crafty right away. <laughs>
2: Its therapist told it that it shouldn't be doing the work.
0: It's February 1st. Jewish space lasers has already happened. Like, I'm scared for what 2021 is. (laughs) 2021 is
2: very, very,
1: very strong. Month
0: one capped off with Jewish space lasers. There was a lot of crazy stuff before that. And that's how the month ended. So let's see what you got February.
1: Remember Rising Out of Hatred, Eli Zaslow's book about the former white nationalist Derek Black, who turned against white nationalism because he went to college and a bunch of Jews kept having him to Shabbat dinners.
0: Yeah, that was an amazing episode we did with him. Right.
1: I wanted to test her theory of the Jewish space lasers and the Rothschilds and the Zionist conspiracy against actual Jews serving her food.
0: When Jerry Nadler had that Zabars bag on the floor of the Capitol, he was actually bringing it to her. He was bringing her a bagel, locks, a little schmear. John Ossoff, give her some chicken soup. Yeah. Give your fellow countrywoman, stateswoman, some chicken soup.
1: Our guest today is Ed Asner. He is one of the most beloved and honored actors in the history of this republic. He's won more primetime Emmys than any other male actor. He's been in Elf, he's been in Roots where he played the captain of the slave ship. He's been in Up, he's been in movies with Elvis Presley and now he's on Unorthodox. Mr. Asner, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So before we get to your storied history, before we talk about acting with Elvis and uh,
3: Let's talk
1: about girls. (laughs) That's coming too. (laughs) Do you want to talk about girls or the Holocaust first?
3: I guess we'll have to talk about the Holocaust because that pays the bills.
1: For so many of us. The Holocaust really does, yeah. You have no idea. Your new movie is the animated short, The Tattooed Torah. The true story of a Czech Torah scroll that was seized by the Nazis but made it after the war to England and then to America, a beautifully moving tale. And you're the narrator of that. You want to tell us what it's about?
3: The Tattooed Torah is a, uh, well, let's call it the holy and the perverse, a combination of the two. Tattoo being the perverse part, Torah being the holy part. I um, was approached by Mark Bennett to uh, do the narration for the piece. And uh, it's an honor. It deals with... Tours having been gathered in by the Nazis during the beginning of World War II to be destroyed, and how this one particular one, which was decorated by a special artist, was saved and preserved and resurfaced
1: in the States. And now is, is used by the Solomon Schachter School in Chicago.
3: Yeah.
2: Now, Mr. Asner, I am not what you would call a sentimental fellow, and I've I've watched my fair share of Holocaust movies. But watching this, or more accurately, listening to you, I found myself, I'll say this because I have to preserve my, my image. I won't say I cried. I'll say very close to the verge of tears. I want to know about this this particular moment, but also kind of voice acting in general, which you've done frequently and, and, and better than, than almost anyone else. How do, how do you get to the point, you know, you're sitting there in a room and you have maybe some visuals, but you're conveying this tremendous amount of sentiment, tremendous amount of, of emotion. Are you thinking about something? Are you plugging into something? Are you connecting to something? How does that come out?
3: Well, first of all, uh, you're talking to somebody who was spoiled early on by good writers And when something as well-written as the Tattoo Torah is, it gives you an emotional base to affect yourself. Once you've been affected, you can transmit that through your voice, transmit it to others, and hopefully affect them as you've been affected. I, I materialized during the time of Alexander Scorby, and such great voices as that. We have to be affected. When we're affected, hopefully we'll get to you.
1: So I wanna take you back to the late 1970s. I was growing up in Springfield, Massachusetts. My mother was a red diaper baby raised by leftists. And uh, she used to say the the only celebrity she would leave my father for was Ed Asner.
3: Oh, where is
1: she now? She's in Springfield, Massachusetts.
3: Uh, give me that address and phone number, please.
1: I'll put you guys in touch. Okay. Uh, my dad, still there, might have something to say about it, but maybe not. I think he'd be pretty chuffed as well.
3: Well, he could take his nap.
1: <laughs> <laughs> my mother felt you had the looks and the politics. And I remember when Lou Grant was canceled, it was your theory that, that it was your outspoken leftist politics.
3: What do you mean my theory? I mean, I, I, you, you're going to grant me a few other people as well, aren't you? Well, sure. I mean, what did they say that?
1: I mean, educate me. At the time, was that was CBS saying as much?
3: Yes, they. Uh, there were plenty of indications that uh, I uh, was too outspoken in terms of my talking about the U.S. emphasis on training the, the Contras were working in uh, Nicaragua emanated out of El Salvador, actually, and the murders that took place there. And there were too many. The four nuns, the priest who was uh, assassinated, they were running roughshod over the country, and uh, I wanted to keep that from happening in Nicaragua.
1: And do you feel that your politics, have, has it cost you work since then? Would you have had a different career?
3: It did at the time. Uh, a commie light is what people thought of me as. <laughs> <laughs> and I, um, I gladly accepted. it.
1: But it seems like today, when you look at Hollywood today, I sometimes feel like every actor is trying to outdo the next actor for the cause of the day, the Social Justice Award. It seems like it's become more chic to be politically radical. Is that true? I would hope so. I would hope so.
2: Would you really? I mean, because I'm thinking about someone like you who paid a very real price for their convictions, whereas today you could be kind of an armchair... Radical, paying no price at all, be revered in social media, and, and there's no problem. Is there no part of you that says, like, wait a minute, like, when I was starting an organization that helped support all these causes, this wasn't cool. In fact, I was punished.
3: Well, when you live in a this, this democracy that it's called, the bottom line is that everyone scrambles to make sure that we don't go socialist. We don't go socialist with the vast majority of those people who are willing to admit to it don't even know what a socialist is or what it entails. So until that education is achieved, that I'm all for everybody getting into the gang and getting into the picture.
1: What was your favorite role?
3: I love doing Axel Jordan and uh, Rich Man Poor Man. Intellectually, I guess I achieved a certain height with uh, roots, creating the, the man who goes along with the system, hoping to uh, ameliorate it, and in the end becomes a victim of it. And bottom line, Mary Tata Moore and uh, Lou Grant were idea shows of different natures, but I was quite happy with the results.
2: I giddily recently streamed both of these shows again because I still think they are among the absolute finest pinnacles of television writing and performing ever created and the thing that struck me the most it's not that there hasn't been good television since or that there isn't good television today certainly there is but there was something about these shows that will probably take a very long time to sort of like unpack that was both incredibly approachable deeply serious Hugely funny and, and very warm and human in a way that I just don't think television thinks and, and, and purports itself nowadays. Two-part question. First of all, do you watch stuff nowadays? And second of all, do you like anything that you see or do you think that golden age is long gone?
3: I, I think it's long gone. I, first of all, I, I, I could kiss you for that glowing description you just gave and uh give me a kiss. <laughs> the beauty that we presented, it was all the writing, great writing. And we're here today to celebrate the passing of one of the great writers of Mary Tyler Moore, Alan Burns, who died two days ago. I would say that he is as responsible for me as anybody else. Jim Brooks was the wild-eyed creator along with Alan, but Alan was my caretaker. He was was my groomer. He taught me to be a gentleman, as you knew I was.
1: (laughs) Did you as an actor ever wish you were doing something else? Writing, set design, casting? What other parts of the industry appeal to you, if any?
3: I'd like to be a writer, but I avoid writing. I, I run from it. I don't like it. I don't know why. Maybe it's because you don't read the rewards so you don't know the writers like you know the actors.
1: Did you suffer from envy as an actor? You had such a, a big career, but was there anyone whose career you were jealous
3: of? Everybody. <laughs> Everybody, yeah. Elvis? No, no, no. He was a nice guy. I didn't envy him, though. I envied him his success, his riches. I suppose I could say his women. But I, I didn't want to be him. I was just that glad that he was a regular guy. So, The Tattooed
1: Torah, your new animated short that you narrate, pretty Jewish tale. I
3: would have been nothing in life if I hadn't been a Jew. What do you mean? Well, I. Suffered early on. I lived in a uh, predominantly Protestant community, went to public school, and then had to take a streetcar and a bus after public school to go to Cheder, which is a Jewish religious school.
2: This is in Kansas City, correct?
3: Yeah, Kansas. Kansas. Four days a week, I would go to Cheder. I was oftentimes the only pupil in Cheder. We got this American-born rabbi, finally. He told me that uh, I'd be going four days a week. And then uh, the older kids would only have to go two days a week. And I thought, that'd be fine. Finally, when I turned out, and I found myself to be the oldest kid. And I was still going four days a week. And the younger kids were going two days a week. <laughs> so uh, I could never go play the games, play basketball, play basketball. Football, I wanted to do all that with my peers. I had to get on that bus in that streetcar and, and take it to Ohev Sholem Synagogue.
2: Did the rabbinate ever call out to you? It has a performative aspect, it has an intellectual, emotional connection.
3: No, not a bit. I'm, I'm sure that the rabbi was trying to groom me for that job, but uh, I would never have done it. But that was my privation. And uh, Finally, I uh, approached my bar mitzvah, and uh, the rabbi tendered a contract that I would go for a year to Cheder after my bar mitzvah. So I signed it, and I got him real good. I broke the contract.
2: It's not too late to to repay your debt if you if you have like eight months left on the on the bill. Just you could do it right now.
3: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think so. I think I will. I
2: think
1: I will. So you were born in 1929, right? And so you yeah. came of age as an actor after World War II. You came of age in an era where American Judaism, first, nobody was talking about the Holocaust. They were talking about the state of Israel. Then they were talking about Ari Ben-Kanan in, in Leon Uris and Exodus and Paul Newman. Then it was Anne Frank and Fiddler on the Roof. I mean, you really lived through the period where we went from Gentlemen's agreement, everyone had to change their name, to Judaism as this you know, folkish kitschy thing, almost. When you were an actor in those years, what did being Jewish mean to you?
3: It meant uh, everything. And now it it doesn't mean that. I look at Israel, at um, Netanyahu. Sheldon uh, Andelson just died. And I think, I contemplate what Arabs are being screwed today. And um, I don't celebrate the Jewishness. And I celebrate the past as in this opus that we're talking about, the Tattoo Torah. But I am also dragging my heels at the same time because I'm not proud of my people as I used to be.
1: The politics of the day has made it impossible for you to feel positively about Jewishness.
3: Yeah, totally accepted. Not with some of the bad characters. I realize it's a, it's a normal society. It's got good and bad. And uh, If I can get past that, then I will begin to accept it more.
1: Well, I think Adelson's ethnicity was just Las Vegas. No, he, he, he's talking about. <laughs> you know, he's exactly what I would expect of a casino baron of any faith.
2: I want to ask an existential question that is not necessarily just a political question. Are you hopeful looking to the future, or do you think that? this country has gotten to the point where redeeming itself would be very difficult.
3: Well, I mean, the assault on on the capital of course was a spoiling image. A lot of people no longer revere us as we used to be revered, but that re- reverence was not necessarily warranted. Hopefully there will be potential and and growth.
1: Mr. Aznar, what I want to know is how have you been spending your quarantine? How you been passing the time?
3: Anyways, uh, it said I sleep a lot.
1: I thought you were going to say girls. I would if I could. (laughs) Mr. Asner, the movie is the tattooed Torah. Yeah. You are the narrator. It has been such a pleasure having you as our Jew of the week. And uh, I'm going to give my mom your number.
3: Oh, please, Jew. And tell me what, what kind of flowers to send.
1: I'll check in with her. I'll get back to you.
3: And be sure and, and put the sleeping pills in dad's coffee. <laughs>
1: <laughs> He's a very. I'll, I'll take care of that. His hearing is terrible. You, you, you have nothing to worry about. Thanks so much. Thank you, sir. Nice
3: being with you.
0: Hey It it is time for some Podbiz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it.
4: mailbox got a letter in the mailbox got a letter in the
1: mailbox mailbox to the mailbox so much good stuff this week you have been on fire as our correspondents you've just been spearing us with intergalactic laser beams of mail nancy geiger sent us a picture of her son in his curling uniform which bears the patch of the israeli curling federation so bliel next time you're home Hop on the ice with those guys. Uh, (laughs) Gail Efron wrote in to defend the spelling of Gail with a Y, which is a tough case to plead, but she's doing it. We're happy to have her, Gail with a Y, in the J crew.
0: By the way, pissing off the Gales has been one of your greatest feats so far. Yeah. A truly peaceful crowd. (laughs) You have made them
2: angry. You will never work out at the J again, Mark.
1: (laughs) Dear unorthodox Seam, Isabel writes, Liel, good choice on the Philly Flyers, particularly Because their mascot, Gritty, was lovingly nicknamed the Golem of Philadelphia around election time last year on Jewish Twitter. But then we get to the really hardcore stuff. We get into our discussion about whether a mom should yank away her kid's Christmas tree as they get more serious about their Judaism. Stephanie, would you read this letter
0: for us? This is a wonderful letter that came in from Carmen. She says, Dear Unorthodox, I'm a longtime listener and fan, writing in response to the father wondering about taking away his son's Christmas tree so the child will stop saying he's half Jewish. My mom is Jewish, and my dad was a militant atheist. We had a Christmas tree every year until my Christian grandparents died when I was seven. That winter, my mother announced that, as we were a Jewish family, it was inappropriate to have a Christmas tree in the house. But that tree was magical for me. One of my earliest memories is of standing in the darkened living room, looking directly into the soft lights twinkling like a fairy tale on the fragrant branches. When it came to an end, I was devastated. I didn't need the Christ part. I needed the tree. I'm now raising a Jewish child and trying to show her the everyday joy of Jewish life, completely the opposite of how I was raised. My European in-laws are the warm, loving family I always wanted to marry into. Their unreligious, secular celebrations of Christmas and Easter are cherished traditions for them. I very deliberately don't get in the way, and they in turn help my daughter like the menorah. A Christmas tree didn't turn me into a goy, and neither will chocolate bunnies draw my daughter into Christianity. And if they do, this was probably a battle I couldn't win. I love that idea. I mean, look, I think that's true. Like, you you associate a lot of memories with that tree and yanking a tree away. By the way, I love this. The soft lights twinkling like a fairy tale. Like I'm like,
2: I want that. Oh, my God. Carmen. I'm in. I think Carmen's exactly right for saying this. Like, chocolate bunnies, trees. Like, yes, these things are not part of the Jewish tradition. But if they happen to be in the homes through all kinds of complicated family arrangements, if you're doing your job correctly, there's not going to be any doubt. You know, the Easter rabbit is not going to convert your kid to Christianity. Unless he's in a bad mood.
0: It's actually the Easter bunny, Liel.
2: <laughs> the Easter rabbit, we call him in Israel. Not the bunny. Really? It's, it's the full honorifics.
0: That's amazing. It's the Easter rabbi.
2: It's Exactly. We have hope. He converted. He used to be the Easter rabbi. <laughs> now he's the Easter rabbit.
1: Liel, for making that shrewd, crafty, cunning point, you win the honors of reading the next letter, also on the same topic.
2: Hi, Unorthodox. Just wanted to chime in on the Ditching the Tree letter on last week's show. I was non-Jewish. My husband had a Jewish dad, and we have two kids. Several years ago, we decided to go all in for Judaism as a family. Our kids were eight and five at the time. We started them in Hebrew school and began to attend shul weekly, observe Shabbat, and celebrate all the Jewish holidays. Also, to clear up any possible issues with a patrilineal descent, we all underwent a lengthy, rigorous conversion process, culminating with the entire family going to the mikveh together. That just sounds amazing, by the way. We also ditched the Christmas tree. My mom became the culture bearer of Christmas, and we go to her house to help her put up her tree. In our own home, we do the whole American Jew Hanukkah thing, Eight days of presents, fried foods, songs, and lighting candles. The holiday that was harder for them to give up was actually Easter. Passover is just such a totally different experience, gee, you think? And they love that too, but it definitely isn't a replacement for Easter. We decided to invent a new holiday to replace Easter, which is a celebration of how summer is coming. It is called Pick a Toy and Play With it Athon. And the idea is that the kids get to pick out a sporty type outdoor toy, which will be awesome for summer play. And we have a picnic and play outside all day on a day when the weather is perfect. shavuot Tov, Chava. This is so amazing. I- I'm celebrating pick a toy and play with it, a thon. That is a
1: festivus for
2: the rest of us. It sounds better in Yiddish.
1: Soften the loss of Christmas or Easter by making up a new and totally fun Holiday replete with toys and dancing and outdoor
2: every fourteenth of tamas is now the Picatoyan play with it a thon. <laughs>
4: I love
0: this. But look, this again, like this is what we talk about. Like I love the idea of converting as a family, being in that mikvah together. Everything is really upfront, right? Like these kids understand what's going on just like the parents do. I love that idea that they are all in this together in a real way, having those questions, having these conversations, inventing holidays together. Like that is truly a family of faith.
2: It's
1: like our Christmas holiday, which is celebrated by staying in our
2: pajamas all day.
1: That's how you celebrate Christmas. And also,
2: there's this great Jewish principle of Ma'alin en you always take things up a notch when it comes to holiness and sacredness, never down. You know, you never take something that used to be holy and make it less holy. You take something and make it a little bit more special. So instead of just taking away the tree, you add a holiday. That's the spirit there. Yeah, that's nice. That's nice.
1: Uh, Taking things a little bit darker, our correspondent and former Jew of the Week, Jed Sugarman, professor of law at Fordham University, sent us a tweet that he wrote that he thought we'd be interested in. He wrote in that tweet, this is the third time in a week I've seen, quote, cabal of child killers as a description of the Q conspiracy delusion in major media outlets. I know it's unintended, but cabal comes from a medieval epithet against Jewish Kabbalists. Stop using it, especially for Q. And he pointed out that Mike Rothschild on our show talked about theories of cabals of... Of pedophiles or whatever. I had never heard that cabal was a corruption of Kabbalist or Kabbalah, but Jed wants us to stop using it. And I could kind of go with that.
0: According to Wikipedia, the term Kabbalah is derived from Kabbalah, the Jewish mystical and spiritual interpretation of the Hebrew scripture.
2: Whoa! Oh. Whoa. So, yeah. How, how surprising that a word meant to describe a small group of all-powerful people who control the entire world somehow is connected to Jews. I mean, really, who <laughs> would have thought it? So
0: does that mean that Kabbalah is inherently, and like, to use the word Kabbalah? That's his meaning, argument. I mean, I've never heard of it outside of talking about Jews, and we use it mostly <laughs> like... Nicely to each other, right? To like, we're the in crowd. That's interesting. But you know what? It's not my favorite etymological battle. Mine is whether brouhaha
2: comes from
0: Baruchata like in ancient ancient times.
1: Oh, we talked about that a couple years back, and didn't we? And people say
0: yes and people say no. Yeah. So I but I want to reignite that bruhaha, brouhaha.
1: And abracadabra is has biblical origins, right? Does it? Leo, you would know this. Isn't abracadabra something in Mishnah or it's it in the legends of the Jews somewhere?
2: It's in the Tractate Harry Potter. I have no idea. We were
1: told that on our birthright trip. Tzvika or Tsvi, the uh, former spy slash rock star slash you know Latin lover, who was the who <laughs> was your uh, <laughs>
3: birthright tour
1: guide, right? who was our tour guide, said uh, this is Valley of Abracadabra or something like that. For, hence, the term, the magicians here would use you know incantations. Hence, Abracadabra. No idea if it's true or not.
0: Again, Wikipedia, a very real source. Several folk etymologies are associated with the word from phrases in Hebrew that mean "I will create as I speak." Or Aramaic, I create, like, the word.
2: Evrake maybe. Yeah, that that makes sense.
0: But you know, it's kind of like those articles that came out this summer that were, like, phrases you don't actually realize have are rooted in racist, like, practices. And, like, grandfathered in is, like, like you're like, oh, my God, all of these things we just say, we have no idea where they come from. Master bedroom.
2: As Rav Weasley said in the name of Rav Dumbledore, <laughs> abracadabra to us all.
1: So I want to end on a couple really important letters. One of them, of course, takes up the ongoing saga of Friendly's restaurants now emerging from bankruptcy with a new buyer. One of my recommendations for the next chapter of Friendly's was that they return to the distinction between the milkshake and the fribble, which used to be the extra thick milkshake. And Wayne Gelfman writes, the fribble is actually the modern reform ice cream concoction from Friendly's. Those of us who grew up in the 50s and 60s in Springfield fondly remember the awful, awful the more traditional Orthodox precursor of the fribble. And then he attached this article from the Berkshire Eagle about how there used to be something even thicker that you literally could not drink with a straw. You needed not just a spoon, an ice cream scoop to drink it. And it was called the Awful Awful. But there was a New Jersey dairy that also sold an Awful Awful. So the friendlies needed, a, if they wanted to expand the mid-Atlantic states, they needed a new title and they held a contest and somebody said,
2: call it the fribble. This, by the way, comes from the Hebrew word falafel. which <laughs> Falafel, falafel.
0: <laughs> by the way, I freaking love Jews. I love Jews. Love Jews. Why does anyone hate them? We are great. This is a great letter.
2: I mean, hold on. Th- this is this is really like, how could you listen to a show like ours and forget us, right? Hear these letters and then say, I don't like these people. Like, what kind of monster <laughs> would come up with that idea?
0: Like, we're not, we don't, we're not hitting anything with the lasers. These are lasers of love. Our mailbox
1: is so much more fun than Marjorie Taylor Greene's, right? That's the other thing is it's, just just vote fun and and we'll do fine.
0: I can't wait till she goes on her like ADL tour of apology. And they take her to Yad Vashem, and she's like, I'm sorry, what is this memorializing?
1: And finally, Robin Winston writes in, I heard your discussion of Andrew Yang, New York City mayoral candidate, and the issue of how to pluralize bris, circumcision. I definitely agree that Yang is not likely to be familiar with rules governing Hebrew plurals, but immediately I thought of a different, maybe parallel example. Talit in Hebrew goes to talitot, the feminine plural, but talis in Yiddish actually goes to talisim, so it switches into the masculine in Yiddish, but then takes the Hebrew masculine plural. So, she asks, if talit can be pluralized in more way than one, why not bris? Please enlighten me. Robin Winston, Culver City, California. So I did some research, and Robin has a point. It is true that some Yiddish words take a Hebrew plural, like talisim, or, for example, sforim, holy books, which in Yiddish is sefer, as it is in Hebrew, but then in Yiddish, takes the Hebrew plural. So is brisim one of those, right? Or is it brisin? Like sometimes it'll take the I-N, like gitten, a divorce document, a get in Yiddish goes to a plural with an N, gitten. So I checked in with Tablet Magazine's Rochel Kafresin.
0: She's amazing, by the way. She writes a, such a good column.
1: Such a good column. Who's our Yiddish culture correspondent. And she wrote, any Yiddish dictionary will tell you that there's only one plural form of bris, which is brisin with an N, not the expected brisim. I do appreciate Yang's hypercorrection, though, which I'm fairly certain passes muster in 90% of the modern Orthodox world. We'll return to that in a moment. But Ruchel writes, in my opinion, if you're talking about the English word bris, then brisses is an acceptable plural, as that's how English plurals are formed: kiss, kisses, bris, brisses. See, for example, Mickey Katz's record, "Music for Weddings, Bar Mitzvahs, and Brisses." I guarantee, if Katz was speaking Yiddish, he would say brissen. But the title of the record here is in English, so Yang got it super wrong. I got it plausibly right, brisses. But Rochel says in Yiddish, you actually want brissen, leaving us with the question: Sarah Fredman Ader, in your experience in the modern Orthodox world, would people, because they're now more Hebrew oriented, hypercorrect to brisim the way someone on Andrew Yang's staff did?
4: No. <laughs>
0: Well, I, I do want to say that people on Facebook were like, how dare they not? They weren't mad that we were calling out Andrew Yang. They were mad that we didn't have the right answer. They thought that our like, plausible answers to that question of what the plural is were wrong. And someone was like, I hold all of you responsible. Even Josh Cross, even Sarah Fredman Ader. <laughs> and Sarah Fredman Ader wrote and was like, I wasn't there for that recording. Dude, I am
4: not part of it. Well, it's just I'm very protective over my bris cred. That being really my entryway into this job and into the world is being the circumcision expert and being on the circumcision special episode. So I just want That's to right. make sure that everyone knows that I wasn't there and I have nothing to do with this and please still like me.
1: So you would say if you were talking about multiple brisses. Britot in Hebrew, you'd say brissen with an N or you'd say brisses. I think you'd say brisses because it's a pretty American word now.
4: I probably wouldn't say brissen because I would either say brisses if I were speaking English or I would probably say like brit milaz, which also doesn't work in any way. But I'd probably do the Hebrew English, the Hinglish version. Right,
1: right. Correct. Anyway. Ruckel's theory seems to be that somebody on Andrew Yang's staff was a modern Orthodox Jew hyper-correcting a Yiddish word into the Hebrew plural. Interesting new twist. We invite yours. Write to us at at unorthodoxatabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. Our
2: guest today is the author, Cambria Gordon, who, because I am privileged to know her, I will call Cami throughout this interview. But you may not, at least uh, not until you buy her book. It is called The Poetry of Secrets. It is a young adult book, and I am not young, uh, or for that matter, really an adult, but I still enjoyed it very much. Kami, welcome to the show.
5: Thank you, Leal. I'm really excited to be here.
2: So I will ask you to do something that is unfair and completely impolite and sum up the very dense and exciting plot of this book in a few sentences just so we could set up the theme of our conversation.
5: Well, the title is The Poetry of Secrets. It is a forbidden love story that set during the Spanish Inquisition, which we all think of as 1492 when the Jews were expelled, but my book actually takes place in the run up. So around the 1483, it's really about a young woman who is stuck in this situation, who comes from a converso family, born Jewish but baptized. And they practice their Judaism in secret. They're called crypto-Jews. And she is betrothed to a prominent Christian in the city. And she doesn't want to marry him. And she falls in love with the wrong
2: man. Who is A, dreamy. And B, turns out to have all kinds of secrets of his own. So before I even ask you more questions about the plot and and the character, I want to say that usually when I read a book and I see an author's note, I kind of usually, to be honest, skip it. Because, you know, I've, I've already read what I've come to read. I didn't in this case, and I was really glad that I didn't because I learned the very rich history that ties you both to Spain and to Sephardic Jewish culture, right? So how did you come by this topic?
5: Well, I was born Ashkenazi, but my father died when I was very young. And when my mom remarried, her husband adopted, my sister and I, when I was 10, and he is Sephardic. So I had this Ashkenazi birth and genetic background. And then I had this Sephardic upbringing from my father's mother and actually grandmother. So my great grandmother at the time, her name was Fortune Gourmet. So I had a lot of the cooking and the Spanish in the house. And of course, I don't look Sephardic. My ancestors are from Hungary and Romania, but I feel very connected to both sides. And my connection to Spain is my family, my husband and my youngest son took a sabbatical for a year and we moved to Madrid, having known nothing about the city, never having been there. We enrolled him in school. We learned Spanish. I'm still just an intermediate speaker, but I'm trying to become an advanced speaker. Anyway, I got super connected to the Jewish experience there and and sort of the lack of Jews that I found there. When we first moved there, everyone we met was Christian, and I started seeing some Jewish neighborhoods, some Jewish quarters of various cities we visited. And I thought, wow, all these cities were filled with Jews, but they're no longer here. What was the story there? I confess, growing up in Los Angeles, I did not learn a lot about the Inquisition. For some reason, it was not taught in our history classes. And when I asked many of my new friends in Spain, do you know anybody Jewish? I was connected to an amazing family. They're not Sephardic. They're Ashkenazi. Many, many Sephardim are not in Madrid anymore. I was connected to this incredible family of whom the, the father founded the Orthodox synagogue in Madrid. And he knew a lot about the history. And he's the one that first took me to a Jewish town in Extremadura called Trujillo, where I actually sent my book in. And that's kind of began my adventure, my imagination as to what would happen if I were a Jewish teenager born during this time.
2: How do you get in this mindset? How do you get into this character's head?
5: Well, I spent a year just reading books. My year in Madrid was all about reading fiction and nonfiction that was historical that took place during this time. I couldn't get enough of it. So that was the foundation. I didn't have any story in mind at all. But I always think about what, I would do if put in a situation. So I think about that vis-a-vis the Holocaust a lot. Would I be a defiant person? Would I go along with it? Would I try to escape? If I was a mother, would I send my kids away? If I was a young person, would I go underground? I don't know. And I always try to think about that. So vis-a-vis the Inquisition, when I came home, I had all these books in my head that I had read. And I love romance. I think you must be a romantic at heart if you read, if you enjoyed the book. And I really thought, okay, what, what would it be like for a teenage young woman who has not been given a lot of choices and who is living in a Christian country and has desires to be a poet, desires to fall in love, desires to be independent, desires to understand religion and doesn't really know why everyone's fighting around her, doesn't really even know a lot about Judaism, but has questions. So from there, I just started imagining it and this voice came out of me. Maybe I was reincarnated. Who knows? I mean, I'd i like to think that I relate a lot to her and I'm sad about all those people who perished. And I, I just connected to it in, in an imaginary
2: way. Your heroine, Isabel, among the sort of many things that make her a really interesting character, Not only is she fighting to maintain her identity in this very perilous time and also manage a very tempestuous love affair, but she also sits down with her grandmother, who is the sign of of this great rabbinic family. And she does something which is still considered defiant in in some Jewish communities. She studies Talmud. As you were kind of researching this book and, and inhabiting this character, I'm wondering if something happened in your own concept of your Jewish identity. Did you suddenly feel yourself... More drawn to it? Did you feel as if drawn to different things than before? How did it impact you?
5: I loved researching the Talmud for this book. My rabbi, Morley Feinstein, really helped me and actually read a draft to make sure I, I didn't have any mistakes. And I realized how complicated it is. It's so, so complex and so deep. And I barely touched on it. So I would say that my curiosity has been piqued. I once took a class on Kabbalah, and i I realized also that that was over my head. And I had passed the test. I was over the right age. I just I was not a man, but i I was allowed to study it. And it still was very difficult to to grasp. And I feel that way about the Talmud as well. And I also feel I used to think, how can? men mostly, study all day, every day, how is there enough material? How can they not get bored? How can they not want to go and do something else? What keeps them grounded to that desk and the table? And I see it. I mean, I I understand why you can just eschew everything and and just want to do this. So I was really, really excited and I want to do more. I want to learn more.
2: There was a line in the book in which Isabel and her sister, Beatrice, who is, uh, am I pronouncing this correctly? Is it Beatrice? Very good. Beatrice. Beatrice. Yeah,
5: Beatrice.
2: Have this conversation with, with their father and ask him, you know, point blank, what are you? You know, are you Jewish? Are you Catholic? And the answer is something like, I don't know, something kind of in between. I'm wondering, as you are researching the kind of inner lives of these crypto-Jews who are forced to live a lie, what's your entry point into this? What's the way? Because, you know, we we live in a society right now where we're fortunate enough, despite rising anti-Semitism, et cetera, but we're fortunate enough to take some pride in our heritage. And here you are imagining these characters who live in a universe where religious identity had to be obscured. How do you think your way into this?
5: We live in a world of extremes right now. And I ultimately wanted my character to take a stand, not to be in the extreme in the year 2020, but back then, which was also in extremes, where it was very black and white. And my character and her family were in the gray. And it was safe, but it was also risky. But they were playing it safe. And I I ultimately respect those who take a stand, who, who find their identity, and that's what I wanted Isabel to ultimately do, because I I don't think you can have it both ways. I think that at the risk of getting into politics, I think that we need, our country right now needs a more moderated view, but I also really believe that there should be a safe space for people to have their identities and that we should have this tolerance, and back then there was there was zero tolerance, and so I wanted her to feel... That when she she took a stand, she was going to maybe make a change societally on a bigger scale so that she could be safe taking her stand.
2: It's interesting that that you bring this up because the one thing that sort of kept reverberating in in the back of my mind as I, I read this book is how kind of strangely timely it is. I mean, there was a survey published not too long ago that said that an overwhelming majority of Americans, irrespective of political or partisan affiliation, felt uneasy or perhaps even unsafe expressing their political opinions out loud to their friends and neighbors which is something you certainly would not have seen in America even you know 5 years ago so while this is light years away of course thankfully from the terrors of the inquisition i think a lot of contemporary readers reading it right now would have no problem sort of identifying with this notion of what it might be like to be in a situation where we're speaking your mind and, and your heart might not be the wisest choice. So so is this something that seeps in as you write? Because because you wrote this as the political climate was heating up, or is this just kind of yet another example of, of the past informing the present?
5: I think it is the latter. I think it's the past informing the present. And I never could have predicted two years ago when I started this, that we would be in such a divisive situation in America. But as I did research about religious intolerance in, in my addendum in the back of the book and seeing how many countries around the world are still practicing persecution, I realized that it's never gone away and, and I pray it does. And I thought, you know, religious identity is not really that different from political identity or gender identity or something that we all want to feel safe in in expressing and we can't. So there are so many connections about being the other, and how the Jews were the other in in Spain, um, the minority. And we have so many others here in our country that are trying to raise their voices. So, you know, yeah, I, I wish for a pluralistic society. I wish for a pluralistic world. And I think the coincidences—I didn't consciously address them when I was writing. I will share a silly story though. When I was a little girl, I was with my family on in Europe. It was my parents' honeymoon. My my new dad. And mom took my sister and I on their honeymoon and we were on a train in in Europe and I drew a huge Jewish star with like rainbow colored Jewish star. And I held it up in the train and I said, look, you guys. And I, I wrote Jewish power. I have no idea why I did this. There was a man in the train car with us and... We didn't know him. We didn't even know what language he spoke, but my parents were like putting their hands under their necks, like, Shh, put, your, put your picture down, put your picture down. And I had no idea why I should be <laughs> frightened of that. I know that that stuck with me. It was like, I have this naivete and um, <laughs> desire to share with the world that I am a Jew, and that was not the case for Isabel. So I, I know that I was channeling some of that when I wrote her, that uh, wish fulfillment.
2: And some of this desire to reclaim your own Jewish identity, I think, also connects with your sort of return to Spain. You write, again, in in the author's note of the book, that not only was your adoptive father As far as you, but you very amusingly share an account of your grandfather, who's a a Hollywood director, returning from creating a genre I didn't even know existed, paella westerns.
5: Yeah, my papa was actually a producer and we have the spaghetti western and now we have the paella western, which were B-level bad western movies shot in in Spain. I was five years old when he returned from shooting White Comanche starring William (laughs) Shatner who we know as Captain Kirk, but he was, he played himself and his twin brother, one who was peyote addicted and one who was- um,
2: His evil twin brother. His
5: evil twin brother. <laughs> and it's it's famously listed in the, the Razzie collection of the worst movies ever, but in a good way. So he, he returned from Spain and it was a very romantic experience for me as a little girl to hear his stories and hear about his filming in Spain and my grandmother and he had brought my sister and I these flamenco dresses and I just loved i loved everything about the culture and I loved my grandfather so much
2: Cami Gordon, the book is wonderful I hope it provides major opportunities to readers to learn more about this fascinating period and about this important section of Jewish heritage, thank you so much for being our guest today.
5: Thank you Leo thanks for having me Mazel tobs.
1: Stephanie, do you have a mazel this week?
0: I have a mazel to our wonderful friend and former guest, former neighbor of Mark Oppenheimer, Gabriel Savit. He won a National Jewish Book Award for his book that he came on the show to talk about, The Way Back. He received the Young Adult Award. It's a really great book. I'm not a young adult, but I uh, maybe I am. Not in the YA version, but I love the book. He was on the show a few episodes back. What a mensch. What a nice guy. What a great honor for him.
2: And so tall. I was about to say, another victory for tall Jews. <laughs> I
1: want to give my mazel Tov to the 10 new tablet fellows, early career or career switching journalists who are joining us for three months to learn from us. And uh, I'm sure also to teach us some things. We have an article up on tabletmag.com about who those 10 are. And we're probably going to be taking 10 new fellows this coming summer. So people should stay tuned for the next round of applications, probably in
2: April or May.
1: Liel, do you have any mazel Tovs this week?
2: I do. Sadly, this week we bid farewell to another gadol, to another Torah great who left us. And just to get a glimpse of who he was and what kind of life he led, I'd like to read to you the first paragraph of the JTA obituary. Rabbi Dr. Abraham J. Tversky, the scion of multiple Hasidic dynasties, author of more than 60 books, and a physician who became a leading authority on drug treatment and addiction, has died. And I thought about Rabbi Tversky this week, uh, because, you know, when we received all these letters about what to do about Christmas trees and Christmas pageants uh, and, and how to make sure that, you know, Jewish kids don't grow up confused by them. I recalled a famous story that Rabbi Tversky himself shared recently uh, on social media. He recalled growing up and going to public school and being cast in the school's Christmas play. And then his teacher uh, received a call from his mother and was sort of concerned that Mrs. Tversky would not take kindly to Abraham being cast in the Christmas play. The teacher said, I knew that Mrs. Tversky would reprimand me for putting Abraham in the Christmas play, but all she wanted to know was whether Abraham was self-conscious because he was shorter than the other children. I said, I thought you were going to reprimand me for putting Abraham in the Christmas play. Mrs. Tversky said, if what we have given him at home is not enough to prevent an effect of a Christmas play, then we have failed completely. So as we bid farewell to Rabbi Dr. Abraham J. Tversky, Baruch Dayan HaEmit.
1: And I think all of us would like to wish a mazel tov to our producer, Sarah Fredman Ader. This is her last week working at New York University's Bronfman Center. She's moving on to a new job. Sarah, what's the new job?
4: Just to clarify, I'll be staying at an Orthodox. I'm still staying with all of you all, but I will be the executive director of American Friends of Nishmat. Nishmat is a center for Jewish Women's Learning in Jerusalem where I spent a gap year. And I'm very excited.
1: And we are excited for you and so pleased that you will continue to have two full-time jobs in addition to <laughs> being a mother. A full-time family. And, yeah,
4: that's that's don't forget the doctorate. I am staying at NYU because of that. And a
0: full-time school schedule, doctorate schedule, and a full-time baking side hustle.
4: But I think it'll be good. It'll be good for us because I love Liel and we're great friends. But it has always been a, a thorn in his side that I've worked for higher education. And I just I think that he might like me more now.
2: Immediately. But
4: you're
0: still working for education.
4: <laughs> right. But
2: like <laughs> but it's, for But it's Jews. Jewish education. That's allowed. <laughs> Not anti-Jewish education like NYU, but Jewish education, which I like.
4: NYU, I love you. Don't listen to Liel.
1: Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our Liel Lebowitz written newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodox podcast. We will someday again come to you live. So to book us, write to producer Josh Cross at jcross with a K at tabletmag.com. Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt to purchase the shirts that you will wear to those live shows. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodox podcast or on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Ader Our associate producer is Robert Scaramucci. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox name is by Steve Barton. Our Kabbalist this our Kabbalist Kabbalist our cabal. Kabbalist our Kabbalist this week is Joel Hogby. Hagbi, Agby? Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Lisa Grushkow of Temple Emmanuel Beth Sholem in Montreal, Canada. We come to you again from the scattered locations of Tablet Studios, Shalom. Friends.
0: Wait, guys, I just got an incredible autocorrect of my own. My nephew Noah, when he goes in the snow, we call him (laughs) Snowa. And I was just trying to comment on like a picture in the photo stream, Snowa. And guess what it went in as? Shoah. (laughs) Shoah. So I had to delete it and write Snowa.